Welcome to Head, Heart, and Hands, the teaching fellowship of Bob Carter, pastor of River City Reformed Church in Wilmington, North Carolina. The Bible teaches that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart and mind and soul and strength. We want to help you do just that. First, the gospel of Jesus Christ is a call to our heads. God wants us to think and to think correctly. Second, the gospel is also a call to our hearts. We are to love God and to love what God loves. And the gospel is a call to our hands, to action, real change and transformation. Now let's join our teacher, Bob Carter, for today's challenging message. The sermon this morning is entitled, Treasuring the Life, Death, and Reign of Christ. We're going to be looking at 1 Samuel 26. We're returning our, to our study of 1 Samuel. We've been preaching through that entire book uh, so far. I took a break in October, mostly for the 500th anniversary of the 95 Theses and the beginning of the modern Reformation in 1517. Uh, but as we turn to this, I want to bring to your attention uh, the reality of chapter 26. If, if you'll go ahead and turn in your Bible to 1 Samuel 26, and you'll see where it is there. We'll take it up in just a second. But I want you to turn back just one page, and you'll see 1 Samuel 24. 1 Samuel 24 and 1 Samuel 26 are virtually identical. Now, God could have just said, it happened again. He could have just made a reference to, remember what happened in chapter 24? It happened a second time. Or at the end of chapter 24, he could have said, and this happened a second time later. But instead, he goes into all of the detail that he went into in chapter 24 about Saul trying to kill David, and David righteously trying to do the right thing and plead his case before God and to honor the king. Saul coming under conviction of his sin and pleading that David be good to him, and being to some degree temporarily embarrassed by the fact that he had tried to murder David. That's exactly how 24 is. We preached on it several weeks ago now. It might be difficult to remember is back in September. We looked at it, and here it is again in detail, not just it happened a second time. Why is it that it's here? Well, the question for us has to be, God is perfectly wise. And if this thing happened to David twice, then David is learning a lesson both times. And he recorded it that we might learn a lesson both times. Maybe the same lesson more deeply. Be more aware. We're aware of verses like 1 Corinthians 16, 13, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, do everything in love. That starts with be on the alert. And that phrase, be on the alert, pretty common. in the Puritan era, the phrase, uh, instead of be on the alert, became take heed. And so you often see that in older writings, the phrase take heed, same thing. First Peter 5.8 says, be sober, be on the alert. Your adversary the devil prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. It starts out, be sober, be on the alert. And so you get those exhortations, and sometimes you hardly kind of know what exactly that means or what would that look like. And so God gives us this illustration of someone trying to kill David, someone who should not be trying to kill David, someone who has lots of other people that have come to his support to encourage him to kill David and are with him to kill David. God wonderfully defends him and delivers him. And then just a little bit later, the whole thing happens again. Be on the alert. Saul stood before David in front of everybody and said, you're more righteous than I. Just stood before everybody that, wow, wow, David. When David, remember they were in the cave and David could have killed him. His men said kill him. He said, no, 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 it's the Lord's anointed. And so he just cuts off the corner of his robe so he would have some credible evidence that, yes, I was this close to you and I could have killed you, but I didn't. And then he escapes out of the cave and he goes out. He holds up the corner of his robe and says, check your robe. I could have, but I didn't. And King Saul says, you're more righteous than I. And now it happens again. 
And the question for us is, what is happening over and over again in our lives that we need to be on the alert? God is driving this message home to King David. After this second time, he will really be circumspect. He will be looking in every direction at all times. He will be evaluating every person and everything because he's so mindful that the head, uneasy lies the head that bears the crown. And the God of the universe has said, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. And Satan hates it. Will you stand to honor the reading of God's word? 1 Samuel 26. Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding on the hill of Hakilah, which is before Yeshimon? So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph, having with him 3,000 chosen men of Israel to search for David in the wilderness of Ziph. Saul camped in the hill of Hakilah, which is before Yeshimon, beside the road, and David was staying in the wilderness. When he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness, David sent out spies, and he knew that Saul was definitely coming. David then arose and came to the place where Saul had camped. And David saw the place where Saul lay, and Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of the army. And Saul was lying in the circle of the camp, and the people were camped around him. Then David said to Ahimelech the Hittite, and to Abishai, the son of Zeruah, Joab's brother, saying, Who will go down with me to Saul in the camp? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai came to the people by night, and behold, Saul lay sleeping inside the circle of the camp, with his spear struck, stuck in the ground at his head, and Abner and the people were lying around him. Then Abishai said to David, Today God has delivered your enemy into your hand. Now therefore, please let me strike him with the spear to the ground with one stroke, and I will not strike him a second time. But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be without guilt? David also said, As the Lord lives, surely the Lord will strike him. Or his day will come that he dies, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But now please take the spear that is at his head and the jug of water and let us go. So David took the spear and the jug of water from beside Saul's head, and they went away. But no one saw or knew, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep. Because a sound sleep from the Lord had fallen on them. Then David crossed over to the other side and stood up on top of the mountain at a distance with a large area between them. And David called to the people and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, Will you not answer, Abner? Then Abner replied, Who are you? Who calls to the king? So David said to Abner, Are you not a man? And who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not guarded your lord the king? For one of the people came to destroy the king your lord. This thing that you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, all you must surely die, because you did not guard your lord, the Lord's anointed. And now, see where the king's spear is, and the jug of water that was at his head. Then Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is this your voice, my son, David? And David said, It is my voice, my lord the king. He also said, Why then is my lord pursuing his servant? For what have I done? Or what evil is in my hand? Now therefore please let my lord the king listen to the words of his servant. If the lord has stirred you up against me, let him accept an offering. But if it is men, cursed are they before the lord. For they have driven me out today so that I would have no attachment with the inheritance of the Lord, saying, Go serve other gods. Now then, do not let my blood fall to the ground away from the presence of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to search for a single flea, just as one hunts a partridge in the mountains. Then Saul said, I have sinned. 
Return, my son David, for I will not harm you again, because my life was precious in your sight this day. Behold, I have played the fool and have committed a serious error. David replied, Behold the spear of the king. Now let one of the young men come over and take it. The Lord will repay each man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord Lord delivered you into my hand today, but I refused to stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Now behold, as your life was treasured in my sight this day, so may my life be treasured in the sight of the Lord. And may he deliver me from all distress. Then Saul said to David, Blessed are you, my son. David, you will both accomplish much and surely prevail. So David went on his way, and Saul returned to his place. Will you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, we do not know what lies in store for us this day. And by your will, this week, and yet you do. And here is this passage of scripture. To come and to enlighten us. To teach us. To strengthen us. To warn us. That we might be on the alert. Against the wiles of the devil who is a murderer. And a liar. And the father of lies. God, that we might see our own folly as we would listen to those who would tell us what we want to hear. And that seeing and understanding these things that we would draw near to you. The way. The truth. The life. Holy Spirit, cause us now to learn what we must learn. And to unlearn what we must unlearn. That we might glorify you and enjoy you now and forever. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. It is critical that we recognize this is in here twice. As I said, it's very, very similar. I urge you to go back and read 24. It's, it's pretty amazing. God does that a couple of times in Scripture where he just simply puts something in there twice. I've mentioned it before. One of the Psalms is repeated. Psalm 14 is Psalm 53, a second time. Psalm 70 is the last part of Psalm 40. And Psalm 18 is in both the histories as well as in the Psalms. So Psalm 18 is in the Bible twice. So we see examples where God simply under his perfect wisdom has ordained that we would see something and read it more than once. And here is an example. Um, We would want to then think very carefully today and this week, wow, what is it there that... uh, A couple of weeks ago, we looked at chapter 24, but the God of the universe thinks there's more here for me uh, to look at, more for me to learn. We certainly know that we need to be on the alert uh, anytime and anywhere and to be more alert than we were previously thinking. From time to time, Jenny and others will ask us to pray for relatives who are in dangerous places, and that is perfectly wise and appropriate to do that. And yet, the Holy Spirit is saying to us, we are all, as children of God, in a dangerous place. We are in a spiritual field mine, a battle zone, a war zone. And we must come to realize that. We rarely think of it that way. And yet, here, God is really reaching out and grabbing us by the lapels and saying, think on how tenuous David's life was, even though I was with him. And we also have those who would want to bring their own satisfaction at our demise. In our passage here in chapter 26, Saul gets his information, verse 1. It says that uh, then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding on the hill of Hakilah? They know exactly where he is, and they know that this is information that Saul would want to know. And so they give it to him. Brothers and sisters, the evil one is not omnipresent. He is not God. Satan is not omnipresent. There's nothing in Scripture to indicate that he is. But he has a massive number of assistants, which we refer to as fallen angels or demons. He has a significant number of assistants, if you will, that are getting information to him. And that's exactly how this chapter begins, in a very real sense. And we want to be mindful about that today, that that the devil does know 
what we're doing. And it certainly is true, as in any situation of warfare, that the closer you draw to God, the closer you step into the crosshairs of the evil one. One of the Puritan's prayers uh, from the Valley of Vision makes a reference to the fact that you, he wants his life to be of such a way that Satan notices him. He wants his life to be that, that, that Satan recognizes, wow, there's, there's somebody I need to be mindful of. The idea that he's a Christian is praying, thinking, I, I want to be, if you will, used of you in such a way that I'm a threat to the kingdom of darkness. And the reality is there's always people who are around to tell us what we want to hear. They apparently knew that Saul disliked David very much, and they were there, and the Ziphites channeled that information to him to, to see if that would be helpful. Well, he goes down in verse 2, but he doesn't go down by himself. He goes down with 3,000 men. There is great strength in his opposition. There is no reason whatsoever that he should be opposed to David. Even if he thought there was, chapter 24 made it perfectly clear as his life is in David's hands in the cave. David won't do a thing. Although his men say to him, take his life. The Lord has delivered him into your hands. And he says, no, no, I won't. And then he steps out of the cave and he makes it perfectly clear to King Saul that his men encouraged him to take his life, but he would not. So now Saul more than ever knows, he knows the character of David. And yet here he is with 3,000 men. Those who desire to do what's pleasing in God's sight will find great opposition with great strength. In verse 4, we see the reality here of information and the significance of that. David sent out spies, and he knew that Saul was definitely coming. So he hears, he knows what's coming. He sends out spies to find out, is Saul just traveling through, and it just happens to be a coincidence, if you will, or is he coming looking for me? And they come back saying, no, no, he's looking for you. And so then in verse 5, it says, then he arose and came to the place where Saul had camped. So he himself wants to go and find out. He wants to know what the right thing to do is, and he's gathering information. And so that's a critical thing, that, that we would be acting on truth. And so that's what he is doing here. He's wanting to go and find out exactly what's going on. Well, in verse 6 is where he has, now remember, he has hundreds of men with him as well. That's described in another place. He's not by himself at all here. But he doesn't endanger his men. He simply turns around and asks for a volunteer. He himself has decided that he's going to go down and he's going to investigate this in some way himself, or maybe even try to address King Saul. And so he wants somebody to go with him. And Abishai steps forward and says, I will go. Abishai is Joab's brother. Joab is later going to become the commander-in-chief for King David when David becomes king. And he will remain commander-in-chief all of David's life. But this is his brother. This is Joab's brother, Abishai. Abishai in Hebrew means father of wealth. It means somebody that you want to be, that you want to be with you. If to be around him is a blessing. <laughs> Being near him is a blessing. Abishai. Somebody you want with you at all times. And we ought to be thinking of that ourselves at all times. We should be an Abishai to others. And we should ask God that we might have Abishais around us. Somebody that can help us. Somebody that can mentor us and encourage us and pray for us. And we should be doing that uh, for others uh, as well. So Abishai uh, immediately says, yes, I will go. Well, I want to take just a second here and encourage you, turning your Bibles over to First Chronicles. A few more books over. First Chronicles. We looked a couple of weeks ago at Numbers 14. Remember? Numbers 14 and 15. We looked at Joshua going into the Promised Land, sending the spies in the 12 spies, if you remember, and two of them come back with a favorable before the other 10 are fearful about the whole situation. But all 12 are named, and we talked about how that's a hall of shame in the Bible. They're all actually named. Ten of them, when they return, are executed by God. But it's a hall of shame. They have this great opportunity to serve God, but when they come back, they indicate that they're very, very fearful and don't want to do it, and they discourage the people from going in. It's a hall of shame. Well, Abishai is part of another hall of fame. In 1 Chronicles 11, it's the idea that the people are gathered to David, and he has a, a large a gathering, and he wants to capture the city of Jerusalem. And in there, it actually names that he has not only a large gathering of men, but it mentions really 306 men. The 300 are not named, it's just given, they're just given a name of the 300. But there are three that are named, 
And he says, these are the great three. And then he names the second set of three. And the second set of three, Abishai, is the head of those three. The point is this, that Israel has warriors, has a number of warriors. And in 1 Chronicles 11 and in 1 Chronicles 12 as well, it mentions the reality that these men are really known. There's lot, there are thousands and thousands of warriors. But in 1 Chronicles 11 and 1 Chronicles 12, it talks about that there are 30 men that are phenomenal men. There are three men who are phenomenal men. There's a second three men who are phenomenal men. And then there are some others. It has a number of layers here indicating these are great warriors, if you will. In fact, later on, after naming the first three, the three great men, everybody else who is named, if they do anything great, it says they were great men, but they did not attain to the three. They weren't as great as the three men. The idea is that these warriors have a reputation and they are known. And God would have it so today. God would have us today to be mighty men and women of God. We are so surrounded by a culture of personal peace and affluence that we hardly even think along those lines. But that is how God would have us today. And Abishai, back in 1 Samuel 26, Abishai is number four among all those men. He's, he's listed as number four as a great man in the army of God. I mentioned to you before that in Israel, if you go to Israel and go to the ladies' room, on the door of the ladies' room, it says women, which is exactly what you'd expect. If you go to the men's room, it doesn't say men. It says warriors. On every bathroom door in Israel, it says warriors on the door. And Golda Meir is the one who put that into effect. It used to say Anashim, men. Golda Meir changed that and said, put warriors on there. I want the men of this nation, as they grow up, every time they step into the restroom, to be reminded that we need warriors in Israel. And so it's still that way today. God would have it so with us that we would be mindful of the dangers without, the dangers within, and the glory of God, and that we would perceive ourselves as warriors, as we would perceive ourselves as aliens and strangers in this world. So Abishai says, yes, I will go down with you. And they go down, just the two of them go down uh, into the camp. Verse 9, but David said to Abishai, do not destroy him. Abishai wants wants him to, uh, says, let me kill him. I can do it with one spear. I won't need a second time, he says. I can do it with one, one stab of the spear. He'll be dead. There'll be no reason for a second strike. But uh, he won't have it. Verse 9. But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be without guilt? And so he immediately recognizes this reality that this is a king anointed. Who is he anointed by? By Samuel. And they all know who Samuel was. Samuel was a prophet of God. And so he understands this is a legitimate King, I'm not going to stretch out my hand against him at all. I'm going to bow before him. I will not do it. However, in verse 10, he goes on to acknowledge how he knows that God is sovereign. And so he is acknowledging he's not going to take him out. But he's saying, you know, if God wants him out, God can take him out. Look at verse 10. David also said, as the Lord lives, surely the Lord will strike him. Or his day will come that he dies. Or he will go down into battle and perish. So he could just be, he could just die by God's hand. God did that several times in the Old Testament, and David's aware that could happen. He could just die of, of just sort of a natural death, if you will. That happens as well, regardless of age. Or he could die in battle. And so David is very aware, and he is simply, this is a beautiful example again, of he's entrusting himself to God. He sees some conflicting situation here. King Saul is his enemy, and King Saul is his king. King Saul has tried to kill him, and he knows right now that he's trying to kill him. He knows. He sent out spies to find out. He knows that he is here right now, King Saul, in order to put David to death. But he will not stretch out his hand. This is the probably one of the consummate examples outside of Christ in Scripture of the idea of not taking up arms against someone who is trying to take you out. Someone trying to take you out. David is aware that it's not his men that are at risk. It's him that Saul wants. And he says, no, I won't do it. So we see this beautiful example there of uh, bowing to the wisdom and sovereignty of God. And the question for us this morning as we read that passage would have to be, what is it that you want removed? What is it in your life that you want removed? 
and to understand that God can do that. God can do that. David is trusting himself to God at every turn. And here his life is in the balance, but he, and he has the opportunity to bring this to an end. And it hasn't, this is not the first time. It's been over months and months now. David's very aware of just how much a murderer King Saul is. So they do not, but they decide that they want to talk with King Saul and no better way than to give evidence, just like back at the cave, that we were here. We could have taken your life, but we didn't. And so please listen to us and enter into peace negotiations, if you will. Keeping in mind, though, although it says that uh, they took the spear and the jug of water, look at verse 13. Then David crossed over to the other side and stood on top of the mountain at a distance. <laughs> the idea here is that he could at least get a running start. If, they, if things don't go well here, maybe he's thinking I'm a pretty good runner. But nonetheless, uh, he is close enough to shout back and forth. And they do. But he's wanting credible evidence. This is such a beautiful example. Uh, David wants to persuade King Saul that he means no harm to him. And what better way than to be able to say, look, I was right here. I was right next to you. I took that spear that was in the ground next to where you were lying. And here it is. And at the end of the discourse, if you recall, he says, now send a man to come get it. He doesn't even say, and I'm going to take this with me. He says, you send a man to come get it. He, he means no harm whatsoever to King Saul. The question for us today is, what is it that we want God to remove? And is our trust and faith in that situation with God for him to move at his timing, knowing that he can do anything that he wants to do? And so he does go back over, and then he calls out after they go at a distance, verse 15. So David said to Abner, now who is Abner? Abner is the commander-in-chief of King Saul, the commander of the army. So he's the commander of the army. A great general is what he is. And David rebukes him in front of all of his men. How many? 3,000 men. Rebukes him because he had one job. What would his job be? Protect the king. And he didn't do it. Uh, And so he gives him a public rebuke. And he says, are you not a man? Verse 14 and then 15. So David said to Abner, are you not a man who is like you in Israel? You're a great warrior is what he's saying. Why then have you not guarded your lord the king? For one of the people came to destroy the king your lord. This thing that you have done is not good. As the lord lives, all of you must surely die. He's saying that would be a fitting judgment. That would be a fitting penalty since you've not done this. You remember later on, it's in the book of Acts that Paul gets wind from a nephew, of all people, that there is a plot to kill him. And so Paul says, you need to go tell tell the commander of the jail there's this plot. So Claudius Lysias is the name of the commander of the jail. Claudius Lysias talks to the nephew and hears that there's this plot. And that very night, he puts 470 men on guard as an escort to Paul and sends him out of town at night because he doesn't want this to happen to him. He doesn't want people to break in and in some murderous attempt take out uh, Paul. Well, Abner didn't do that. The reality is he was not on guard and he didn't guard. But the Bible tells us that God himself had given them a deep sleep. And so we see the sovereignty of God in this passage. Well, he says, that there is, if you will hear the statement, you had one job. That's what he's saying. You, you should have been guarding your king, but you didn't. What is your one job? If you're familiar with the catechism, you know, well, my one job is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. What does that mean? It means this, that in every circumstance, you see the sovereignty of God. You understand that when David takes Abishai into this situation, he is aware that he could very likely come out dead. Now, it happened just earlier in the whole scenario, as I've already said in chapter 24, and in that scenario, Saul backed down and publicly apologized to him. But he's putting his life on the line. He could end up dying. But he is trusting himself to God in every circumstance. And so the question for us is, Abner had one job and he didn't do it. What is our one job? Our one job, if you want to boil it down, what is man's chief purpose? It's to enjoy God, to glorify God, and to enjoy Him forever. 
And so we want to be thinking about this Thanksgiving season. Did this past year reflect that in our lives? Were we glorifying God and enjoying Him? What things over this past year did we glorify God? What things in our lives are evidence, credible evidence, like a spear and a jug of water that we can actually point to? What things in our lives would be reflecting of that we glorified God this past year? And what things in our lives this past year that we enjoyed Him? That we enjoyed Him? We, we must come to recognize that God is ruling and reigning over all of His creatures and all their actions and embrace, therefore, not only His commandments, but also His providences. Whatever is happening to you is happening by God's good hand. And David understood that. David understood that and worshipped that God. He didn't just know that that God existed. He loved and worshipped that God that brought the challenges in his life. Well, he makes a plea uh, with him. It's verse 18. He says, Why then is my Lord pursuing his servant? For what have I done? Or what evil is in my hand? He's, he's just saying, you know, look, I, I haven't done anything. You're, you're wrong. Your men keep telling you wrong. I'm not trying to lunge for your throne. Saul and David both know that Samuel anointed them both king. And David is younger. So Saul is very mindful that David could lunge for the throne. And yet at no time has David tried to lunge for the throne. He's like, no, it's yours, O king. And, and it's yours as long as God gives it to you. And, and I, I know you've got nothing to fear from me. And that's what he said two chapters ago when this all happened before. Verse 19. Now, therefore, please let my lord the king listen to the words of his servant. He's pleading with him. He's making an argument with a superior. And he's doing it with great respect and honor. But he's also telling him the truth. He's telling him the truth. If the Lord has stirred you up against me, let him accept an offering. He's saying, well, let's talk about this. Let there be repentance and I'll sacrifice an animal and we'll, we'll get right if I've done something wrong. Let's talk about that. That's what he means here. But I haven't done anything wrong, at least not against you. And so that's not the case. And then he says, but if it is men, cursed are they before the Lord. For they have driven me out today so that I would have no attachment with the inheritors of the Lord. Meaning he's not worshipping with the people of God at this point. He's out as a stranger, an alien in the southern part. So the reality here is that he is making his case before the king. And in doing so, he's doing so with great respect. He's reminding the king the Lord has nothing to fear from him. And he's wanting to be reconciled to him. So the question for us is, what is it? Is there anything that we need to do in that regard? Is there anything he's saying? Is there anything I can do to make this right? Is what he's saying. Is there anything? Because he's, I didn't, as far as I know, I didn't do anything wrong. You have nothing to fear from me. And this shouldn't be. A king shouldn't be pursuing one of his former generals. And you recall that David was, in fact, a general in Saul's army. Verse 19, he says, I'm sorry, verse 20. Now then, do not let my blood fall to the ground away from the presence of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to search for a single flea just as one hunts a partridge in the mountains. And he is just acknowledging, you have no threat from me whatsoever, making it perfectly clear. Verse 21, Then Saul said, I have sinned. Saul comes to his senses. And please hear this again. This is yet another example as to why. You remember as we started our study through 1 Samuel, we mentioned over and over again that Matthew Mead uses King Saul a great deal in his book, The Almost Christian Discovered meaning someone who is almost converted, but not converted. And he gives many examples in that book, Matthew Mead does, of people who look like they were religious for a season, but then went on to demonstrate that their heart was in no way a heart that loved God. And so Saul here, again, for a brief season here, gives some sense of outward repentance. He, he probably genuinely is embarrassed, if you will, uh, over this situation. Verse 21. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son. And again, here he uses the word son. We see that a couple of times in the scriptures where a warrior refers to his superior as father or a superior refers to a subordinate as son. It's a very affectionate thing. And he's saying here, you know, no, return here, my son, for I will not harm you again because my life was precious or treasured in your sight this day. Behold, I have played the fool and have committed a serious error. Well, that's a fairly golden Repentance. I told somebody recently that repentance rarely comes in gold. We always want it to. We want it to come in polished gold and wrapped. 
It rarely comes in tarnished silver. And more often comes in bronze when we get repentance from somebody, apologies from somebody. And we have to learn that that's the reality in this life. I don't mean, but the, the lesson from that is that our repentance, our repentance should always be gold. But here is a fairly good repentance. It looks pretty good. He's, he's really taking ownership over the whole thing and acknowledging it. I have played the fool and have committed a serious error. David replied, Behold, the spear of the king. Now let one of the young men come over and take it. So he's saying, look, I don't want anything whatsoever, not even the spear, to be between us. You come get this, and it will be yours. And then he goes on, The Lord will repay each man for his righteousness and his faithfulness, for the Lord delivered you into my hand today. So he acknowledges the sovereignty of that. But refuse to stretch. I refuse to stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. He's already indicated that to Abishai, and now publicly. Now behold, as your life was treasured in my sight. This is David speaking to the king. Your life was treasured in my sight. He says, so may my life be treasured in the sight of the Lord. And may he, the Lord, deliver me from all my distress. And so he turns it into a public prayer in that sense. But acknowledges, I have treasured your life. The reality is God himself comes in the Gospels and in the person of Christ and demonstrates that he treasures us by laying down his life. As many as are in Christ Jesus, he treasures us. No greater love is a man than that he laid down his life for his friends. And Christ does that. He treasures us and lays down his life. So there's a very real sense in which you can hear here in this passage, not only is David saying to King Saul, treasure my life, Christ is saying to us, treasure my life and treasure my death. The reality is that he wants to go forward here with a sense that we are not only right with one another, but that we are reconciled here in a very real sense. As we think about treasuring this, and David has proved that. David has absolutely proved by not taking the life of King Saul, but holding back. He's absolutely proved that he has treasured the life of King Saul. And he's saying, now I want you to treasure my life. I want you to treasure my life. And Christ does that for us in the gospel. He comes and he could call for our death. It would be righteous if King Jesus asked for our death. For we are treasonous and we are rebels. But he doesn't. He comes and lays down his life as a substitute for us. And then says to us, treasure my life and treasure my death. We can treasure the life of Christ as we swim in the Gospels, as we learn who God is, as Steve said earlier, learning who Christ is and learning what true man is. In the Gospels, Christ is set forth not only as the second person of the Trinity, but as true man. We can see what manhood should look like in the Gospels. We can treasure the life and lips of Christ as he exemplifies what we should look like, the Imago Dei, and his teaching. We need to learn his teaching. And then meditate upon it over and over again. Somebody asked me this week, somebody called me and asked me about getting more of the Word of God into their life. And I reminded them that as we think about treasuring the Word of God, what does King David say about the Word of God? King David says, Oh, how I love your law, O Lord. He loves the Word of God. And Psalm 119, you recall, is that very long 22 subsections in it. 22 sections of that long, long psalm. It's just this beautiful praise to God and thanking him for his word, thanking him for the Bible. We want to be thinking of how we can get the word of God into our lives. There are five ways you can get the word of God into your life, and I really urge you to be thinking about this over the Thanksgiving season. You can read the word of God. You can hear the word of God. You can study the word of God. You can memorize the word of God, and you can meditate on the word of God. You can hear it. You can read it. You can study it, comparing passages back one passage to another. You can study it. You can memorize it. You can meditate on it. What is meditation? Preaching to yourself. And all of those ways you're getting the Word of God into your life. I encourage this person to do all of those things. And I also encourage them that they might listen. As they listen to the Word of God, one way would be to get CDs that have the Bible and listen to them, uh, not in lieu of Bible reading, but in addition to Bible reading. We need to be treasuring the life of Christ who laid down his life for us treasuring the death of Christ, to ask yourself this question, could something other than the death of Christ have accomplished your reconciliation with God? 
And the answer is simply, if something other or something less than the death of Christ could have accomplished your reconciliation with God, that's what would have happened. If something less than the death of Christ would have accomplished your reconciliation with God, that's what God would have done. But it did take the death of Christ, and we are to treasure that. It is the great pearl of great price as we contemplate all that we had to be thankful for. There's nothing more to be thankful for than our salvation. It is not even at the top of the list. It is a list all unto itself, our salvation in Christ. With Christ, we have more than peace with God, our Father, and he has adopted us into his very family. We are to treasure the death of Christ and therefore to walk circumspectly as a result. And finally, treasuring the reign of Christ. As we think about treasuring the reign of Christ, we are therefore talking about the reign of Christ today, which is the church and the Holy Spirit living within us. Listen to that again. The reign of Christ today is the church itself and the Holy Spirit living within us. And so we are to treasure the church, treasure the kingdom of God, the opportunity to get with the people of God and to pray for the church and for the advancement of the church and the glory of God in the church. We are to be praying for and treasuring the church. Many of us, especially in the South, grew up in the Bible Belt, and and it's so common we hardly think about treasuring the church. And yet that is indeed what we should be doing. And then treasuring the Holy Spirit within us, the reign of Christ within each one of us. Our prayer is that the Holy Spirit would more and more come and write his law on our hearts. And that's what we want God to do. A man named uh, Samuel Lockridge talked about treasuring God one time. And I want to read you, if I can, just a portion here of what he said. You can look it up. His name is Lockridge. And it's uh, pretty amazing. He simply contemplated the idea of treasuring God. Many people in the past have done that very thing. To spend some time treasuring God, thinking about it. He says, my king was born a king. The Bible says he's a seven-way king. He's the king of the Jews. That's an ethnic king. He's the king of Israel. That's a national king. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he is the Lord of lords. Now that's my king. Well, I wonder if you know him. Do you know him? Don't try to mislead me. Do you know my king? David said, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. My king is the only one of whom there are no means of measure that can define his limitless love. Listen to that again. My king is the only one of whom there are no means of measure that can define his limitless love. No far-seeing telescope can bring into visibility the coastline of the shore of his supplies. No barriers can hinder him from pouring out his blessing. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. That's my king. He's God's son. He's the sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of salvation. He stands alone in himself. He's honest. He's unique. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He's supreme. He's preeminent. He's the grandest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the supreme problem in higher criticism. He's the fundamental doctrine of historic theology. He's the carnal necessity of spiritual religion. That's my king. He's the miracle of the age. He's the superlative of every good that you choose to call him. He's the only one able to supply all our needs simultaneously. All our needs, the seven billion people on the earth and all of his children. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He's the almighty God who guides and keeps all his people. He heals the sick. He cleanses the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharged debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the aged. He rewards the diligent. He beautifies the meek. 
That's my king. Do you know him? Well, my king is a king of knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway to glory. He's the master of the mighty. He's the captain of the conquerors. He's the head of the heroes. He's the leader of the legislatures. He's the overseer of the overcomers. He's the governor of the governors. He's the prince of the princes. He's the king of kings. He's the lord of lords. That's my king. And he goes on for quite a while further. He has no difficulty simply contemplating what we would call the perfections of God. The beauty of reading something like that is that it sometimes helps us express things that either we would want to express or maybe never even thought to express and to contemplate what a treasure we have in the one true living God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and in the matchless grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As we come to Thanksgiving this year and we think about giving thanks to God, we want to understand rightly, as Steve reminded us, of who God is and then of who we are and our total unworthiness for all that God has given us. The Apostle Paul says, as you reflect upon this Thanksgiving and this past year, what do you have that you did not receive? What do you have that you did not receive? Everything you have came from God. Nebuchadnezzar did not know that, but God taught him that. And he bowed the knee and praised the Almighty. Will you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, we do praise you and thank you that you are the source of all being, of all persons, of all blessing, that we understand more and more what do we have that we did not receive. God, as we contemplate this past year, we think about your mercy to us in Christ Jesus. That by your atoning death on the cross, you have not only forgiven us of our sins, but granted us righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. That you've adopted us into your family. That we are now your sons and your daughters and will be for eternity. God, may it be so that as we approach this season of Thanksgiving, that we would be able to place all of the challenges and blessings of this life against the backdrop and the magnitude of eternity that unfolds before us. God, we pray that you would well up in us a spirit of thanksgiving. That you would open our eyes to your perfections more and more as you did, Dr. Lockridge. That we might read in the Psalms and praise your holy name for your steadfast love that endures forever. God, we praise you that you're the one who causes us to persevere. That he who began a good work in us will complete it unto the day of Christ Jesus. Pray this, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. One final thought here. I encourage you to, as much as you're able by prayer each morning, plead with God that you would be an effective ambassador for Christ throughout the season. If you do not turn the conversation toward the things of God, who will? If you do not turn the conversation toward the things of God during this time of the year, who will? Stand now to receive, if you will, the blessing of God for the people of God. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace, now and forever. Amen.
You've been listening to Head, Heart, and Hands with Bob Carter. This Bible teaching has been sponsored by River City Reformed Church in Wilmington, North Carolina. Our website is rivercityreform.org. River City Reformed Church meets on Sunday mornings at 1030 at the Temple Baptist Activity Center located on the corner of 17th Street Extension and George Anderson Drive. Please visit rivercityreform.org for more information or call us at 910-520-0272. That's 910-520-0272. At River City Reform Church, we are all about loving God with our heads, hearts, and hands. We desire to know the one true God correctly. We long to love God, our Creator and Savior, passionately. We seek to worship and serve God willingly through the power of His Spirit. God wants us and you to ask good questions. He wants us to build our faith on credible evidence, not just a blind leap. Biblical Christianity is true. He also requires and strengthens us to conform our values and behavior to reflect His goodness and holiness. We're thinking, loving, serving. Come and see. John Piper has observed, worship is not the performance of a routine of hymns and prayers and preaching and anthems. When the angel said to John who had fallen at his feet, Don't do that to me, worship God. He did not mean recite a creed or open your hymnal or listen to a sermon. He meant connect with God. Focus on God, not the messenger. Concentrate on God, not the hymn tune. Pursue God, not just knowledge about God. And in all your focusing and concentrating and pursuing after God, seek to stir up your feelings to love Him and honor Him and admire Him and fear Him and enjoy Him and savor Him. At River City, we agree. And we are not limited by a particular style. Rather, we are compelled by a timeless thanksgiving, repentance, joy, and reverence. Our Sunday morning worship is in Wilmington, North Carolina. Please visit rivercityreform.org for more information. On Sunday evenings, we meet for Bible study led by our pastor, Bob Carter. This study meets at 5 p.m. All are invited. Come and see. Come and see.